0: Well, welcome back to the Stay Up My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm your host, Jack Heald. And Dr. O, before we uh, go into the subject of today's meeting, I would like to say congratulations. I got notification that this podcast has hit 5,000 downloads. And uh, that's pretty impressive in the short amount of time that uh, that you've been, you've been doing this. So, good yeah, on thank- you.
1: Thank you. I was very excited to see that. And we're recording this a few days before Thanksgiving. And I just want to say how thankful I am for everyone that has been tuning in, everyone that has been listening, all the great feedback that we've been getting. And I'm just glad that we're able to get useful information in the hands, so to speak, I guess the minds of uh, the audience. And I think today's topic is going to be uh, quite useful information for people to understand.
0: Useful, uh, you know. That's one of the very best things about the things that you've been teaching me. Is is this is not all theory? There, it's very um, uh, practical things that I can do. And my wife has has you know as as she's listened to these things as as we do them. She's in actually in the office with me right now. Uh, she's changed how she eats. So you're making a difference out there. All right. So let's talk about this article you sent me. This is, uh, I think this was a preprint that you sent me. I'm not sure. But the title of the article is How to Survive the Medical Misinformation Mess. Uh, And it's, I guess, a, a research report by uh the main main researcher was john uh Ioannidis, which is I, I guess fairly well known in in your world so ianides stewart brownlee and stride how to survive the medical misinformation mess i read the whole thing and i was i was horrified i'm a layman i would like you to set this thing up for our audience and then Let's go through it.
1: Um, sure thing. And uh, so the copy I had sent you was the uh, preprint, but uh, it's important to point out that this was published and peer reviewed. Um, this article, as you said, entitled How to Survive the Medical Misinformation Mess, uh, was published in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation in November of 2017. And I think as we go through the discussion, People should keep this in mind that this was published in 2017, uh, you know, before um, the current medical misinformation mess that we find ourselves in. Um, but uh, Professor Ioannidis, uh you know, has been on the forefront of this topic. And I think, uh, you know, as I said, this paper is very timely for us to be discussing uh, today. So you yeah, know to,
0: absolutely. Yeah, but give, real quick, let, let me just give the headlines and then you're the you're the expert. So um, perfect. Let's 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 do that first. Um, the, the the gist of the article is that there is a tremendous amount of medical misinformation floating around, not just amongst the, the, the lay people like myself, but also in the medical community itself. Uh, and the authors list four key problems of medical misinformation. Those four are, and I'm just going to read them, uh, much published medical research is not reliable or is of uncertain reliability, offers no benefits to patients, or is not useful to decision makers. I mean, that all by itself, I'm, I just, my head, it made my head explode, as we used to say. And that's just number one. Number two, most healthcare professionals are not aware of this problem. Number three, even if they are aware of this problem, most healthcare professionals lack the skills necessary to evaluate the reliability and usefulness of medical evidence. That was an eye opener. And number four, patients and families frequently lack relevant, accurate medical evidence and skilled guidance at the time of medical decision-making wow this feels like it should be like a 12-part documentary but we're we're just going to do at least one podcast here open it up for us dr o number one much medical research is not reliable or is of uncertain reliability offers no benefit to patients or is not useful to decision makers
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, to fill in a little bit of the context here, you know, I I want people to understand the challenge that faces physicians these days. Um, You know, every physician goes through their education, goes through medical school and their training. And and one of the common quips, you know, that uh, you hear oftentimes as you're going through medical school is that half of the information that you learn in medical school is going to be proven wrong by the time you retire. We just don't know which half. And, you know, every doctor wants to stay up to date on the latest, you know, developments on, you know, the best way to treat their patients. Um, But they're faced with a kind of overwhelming problem. And, you know, in the beginning part of this paper, they kind of outline that problem that when we go through Uh, PubMed, which is the kind of database of record of the published medical literature. Uh, There are currently, and and this again was four years ago that this paper was written, but at the time the paper was written, uh, they stated that there were 17 million articles in PubMed uh, that were tagged as human, uh, and there were over 700,000 articles that are defined as clinical trials. Um, as well as over 1.8 million review articles. So, you know, obviously no physician can keep up with, you know, that volume of literature. And the problem uh, that, you know, problem number one that uh, they outline in this paper is that much of that medical literature is not reliable. And, you know, I have seen statistics uh, that show that anywhere, between you know twenty and fifty percent of uh, medical recommendations uh, is inappropriate, or medical services, I should say, that are delivered in the United States can be inappropriate at times and may even harm patients. Mm-hmm. And you know they talk about in this paper how when researchers have gone through to sort of grade studies and determine, you know what studies actually meet the criteria for being, you know, good medical evidence, uh, as few as 5% of them. So as few as 5% of the published studies that doctors are relying on to, you know, help guide their treatment as few as 5% of them are actually good studies. And that is a big problem for, you know, us as practicing physicians um, because honestly most of most physicians don't have the time or you know as we'll talk about later as we go through this paper don't have the skills to properly determine what studies are useful and what studies are not
0: so this is this is essentially a study of studies and the first the first conclusion they came up with came to at least the first one they they highlight here is that 95 out of a hundred of these studies are, are deeply flawed. Is, is that, did I read that right? That's what I took away from it.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. You know, so less than one out of every 20 papers that a physician, you know, ends up looking at is going to be actually a, you know, good quality study that should impact how they take care of their patients.
0: So, <laughs> I mean, this honestly, this problem is the way they describe this problem is so. Uh, it was distressing to me. Yeah, it's. You know- I I'm I, I'm I'm I was I really been looking forward to talking to you about this since you sent it to me, but I, I'm just, I'm frankly, I'm lost. I, I'm, I'm so, I mean, I knew things were, I, I I, knew things weren't great, but this is, this makes a case that uh, I don't want to overstate it. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're on the inside. Tell me what you, what the view from the inside is. Um, as it relates to this, uh, 5% of studies, they, they, they said 5% are, what's the wording that they used? Uh, fewer, than, fewer than 5% passed a validity screening for an evidence-based journal. What does that mean? Help, help me out.
1: Yeah. So what they did in the study that you know this paper is referencing is uh, basically they had eight criteria that they felt were important to judge whether a a piece of clinical research um, was you know useful was going to be useful. And uh, real quickly, you know, those eight problems they say were that. Uh, First of all, it requires the existence of a real problem to address that is then placed in the proper context, that there is sufficient information from the the research. Um, The research should be patient-centered. It should be pragmatic. It should provide reasonable value for money. It should not be futile and that the research should be transparent. So, you know, someone listening to that, I think certainly, you know, myself as a physician uh, would say those seem like pretty good criteria for, you know, what I should then translate into the care of my patients. Um, but again, when they looked at over 60,000 studies that had been published, um, fewer than 5% of those basically could, could meet at least six of the eight uh, criteria. Um, that they, uh, that they just outlined. So basically, you know, again, one out of 20 studies is actually going to be useful, but these all, all 20 end up getting published. And, you know, as, as a physician who's trying to stay up to date and he's flipping through his, you know, he's reading his journals every month, um, which, you know, is a very time consuming effort.
0: Oh, yeah. uh,
1: and, uh, you know, basically you can imagine that I would say the average journal, you know, the ones that I read, let's say, um, you know, contain somewhere between 30 to 40 public, you know, 30 to 40 studies are in each issue of that journal. And not all of them are going to be, you know, clinical research, but, you know, there, the chances are in each journal that I go through, there may be one actual useful you know, high quality study. Uh, And oftentimes, there isn't going to be any useful high quality studies, you know, in that entire uh, issue of a journal. So this is a big problem for practicing physicians. And as we're going to talk about in the next problem, most physicians aren't even aware of that. They assume that because that study made it into the journal, it's been properly vetted by the author by the editors of the journal. Right. So that it is a high quality study and we should pay attention to it. But as we're going to discuss as we move along, that oftentimes is not the case.
0: Well you know, this may be a little bit of inside baseball here, but but maybe not. As as an outsider, as just a layperson who's a consumer of medical services. I think I'm I'm not unusual I assume by and large my physicians are are using the best information available and, and and I understand that it might not be right but I I've always assumed that they're using the best information available and that there is a system in place a series of processes that have been refined over I just would have assumed hundreds of years so that that the, the beliefs, the techniques, the methods, the treatments that that doctors are are using and and recommending have been vetted really for these six or eight things that you just listed that that somebody has gone through and said, oh yeah, these things are. Um, placed in the proper context, solves a real problem, has sufficient information gain, is centered on the patient's well-being, is pragmatic, has a reasonable value for money, isn't futile. And oh, by the way, and our methodology for, for evaluating this is transparent. We're not hiding anything. I've always assumed that that's going on. And if it wasn't, I would have, I, I guess I've assumed a reasonably competent doctor would know that, but it sounds like I'm wrong. And I, I don't want to sound Pollyanna here, but this is, it's a little, it's, it's, it's alarming. It's very, very alarming.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is alarming. And, you know, the first part of your statement was that physicians are using the best available Tools, you know, resources uh, that they have. And I think that's probably true. These are the best available resources, you know, the, the medical journals, especially, you know, what are considered the sort of high impact, you know, medical journals with the best, you know, reputations behind them, probably are the best tools that we have available to us in uh, keeping up with new developments in medicine. Unfortunately, I think what this paper is showing is that those tools, despite being the best ones available to us, are not very good tools. And, you know, this, I think, is another important piece of what we've been discussing in this podcast about the ways that the system is broken, the healthcare system is broken.
0: Yeah. I, I, I. <laughs> This one, this, this particular episode is, is the least optimistic one I think we've done. And I, I'm not, I don't like that because i like to, I'm, I am by nature an optimist. Um, so I see a problem and, and the first thing I want to do is, is say, okay, well, how do we solve this? But maybe it's too early. Maybe we need to really settle into what the the full extent of the problem is. But if you've got ideas here for how an average Joe like me can navigate inside a medical system that we're suddenly finding out is deeply unreliable, I would sure like to hear it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as we go through this discussion, hopefully we'll come up with some you know, possible solutions and and towards the end of this paper they kind of talk about, you know, maybe some possibilities. I I think the most important thing is something that we, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before, and that is that people do need to have a healthy skepticism as they, you know, approach the medical system. Yeah. Um, And as they, you know, discuss things with their physicians they need to as i've advocated you know they need to be proactive about their health yeah they need to be proactive about you know talking to their physicians about the kind of data that's behind the you know whatever treatment it might be that their physician is is advocating for them
0: and you know, uh, that, that reminds me of of all these these ads on TV from the pharmaceutical companies where they will usually say, talk to your doctor, blah, 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 blah. And with the implication being that your doctor is going to be an expert. And and what what I'm seeing reported here is not only is your doctor not an expert, which is bad enough, your doctor probably doesn't know he's not an expert. He thinks he's got good information. And in fact, the information he's got is probably at, at best, a very low quality and quite possibly wrong. Oh, okay.
1: Problem and two. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I think that leads us into problem two very well
0: problem too most healthcare professionals are not aware of this problem of low value publications low quality publications why i mean obviously time but that's not new you know for as long as we've had human beings we've had 168 hours a week so what's the deal
1: yeah i think You know, this echoes a problem that's, you know, common throughout society today. Um, So, you know, many of us uh, sort of grew up and still exist today, I would say, Um, you know, hearing that, for instance, the New York Times is the, you know, the newspaper of record. And, you know, oftentimes we see that that's not the case and that, you know, their reporting can be inaccurate. And in the same way in the healthcare industry, you know, as physicians, we are taught that, you know, the medical journals are sort of the, you know, the record and they need to be, uh, trusted, sure. um, and, you know, certain journals, you know, we do have sort of ranking systems for journals, I guess I would say. And, and I think many physicians, you know, sort of know which journals are the, most uh, reputable ones and which journals might not be as reputable. Right. But even within that hierarchy, we see problems. Um, There was a very, you know, a recent example where uh, one of the probably, I would say the world's most preeminent medical journal, the Lancet uh, published a study that was shown to be completely falsified, you know, shortly after it was published. And, you know, you have to really start to question when you see something like that as a physician, hopefully you start to question, you know, what is going on here? You know, how did a study such as this that was, you know, felt to be a very important uh, contribution to the you know, medical literature on a hot topic, how did that make it through the whole review process that these journals have in place? When it was, you know, not a little bit wrong, it was found to be a completely fabricated study. Uh, a the fabricated data, study? Yes. The data behind it was found to be wow. completely fabricated, and somehow this made it through, you know, the review process. And, you know, some very astute um, clinicians, you know, looked at the data that was published in that study and something just didn't seem right. And they started poking around. And ultimately, as I said, it was determined that the data behind the study was, was fabricated. Um, but, you know, that made it into the top medical journal in the world. And I would say there's a pretty good chance that if I surveyed a hundred random physicians, most of them would not even be aware that this had happened. So, you know, this is the problem that we're running into. Uh, They talk about, you know, again, in the paper, they talk about journal reading habits of uh, physicians. And importantly, you know, the study that they reference looked at physicians who had kind of gone through an extra training program. Uh, It's called the Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars program. So these are physicians who, you know, had gone above and beyond just their usual medical school and and training to really, you know, understand how to interpret the medical literature. And in that study, most of the physicians admitted that they usually didn't read, you know, the full article. Uh, they, they oftentimes will rely on just the abstract of the articles as they're going through things and that they relied on the editors of the journals to assure, you know, the study quality. And as we talked about, you know, in the last section, uh, that trust in the editors of the journal is probably, you know, misplaced.
0: Wow. Okay, so I remember back when I was a programmer, um, uh, I subscribed to a journal that was specifically for folks who who use the particular tool that I used, and I eagerly looked forward to that because it would typically almost every issue would have a problem that I had run into and a solution, and you know, the cool thing about, about programming, about working with a computer, if somebody says, uh, here's a problem and here's a solution, you can do it yourself and you can see yourself. Yes. This solution resolved that particular problem. So, so getting those journals was, it was a big deal to me. And, and, and I generally read Every word of every article that had any interest to me whatsoever. Um, but these were not huge journals. They would have six, maybe eight articles per journal per month. Um, I've just always assumed that doctors do the same thing. As a programmer, I couldn't just read the summary. The, what would what would be the abstract? that wouldn't give me enough information i couldn't actually go and prove it myself and yet this study says that's not how most of these well-trained uh physicians read okay <sighs> i'm It's too early in the morning for me to be this this wound up. Um, I was I was looking at something that you highlighted in this in this article you sent to me here under problem two. It said uh, nearly half of the abstracts of randomized controlled trials contained biased reporting of study results, implying benefit when there was no significant. No statistically significant difference in the primary endpoint between study arms. Would you would you explain that in, in English?
1: <laughs> yeah, basically, um, what this is saying, and I, I will admit I find this to be true, uh, is that you know when you look at the abstract, the published you know kind of summary of an article. It oftentimes will word things in such a way that imply, you know, that there might be some uh, finding, some effect of whatever they were studying that isn't actually supported by the data uh, within that study. And, you know, this, again, is something I, I oftentimes will see as I'm going through the medical literature around nutrition or around uh, heart disease and, and some of the, you know, interventions around heart disease, where, you know, the paper just won't show, an effect, you know, whatever study, whatever the uh, authors, you know, of the, uh, of the uh, study were trying to show, the data might not support that. But in an effort to basically, you know, make the paper look more important, get it published, Um, they will kind of word things in such a way that imply that there is an effect when there isn't one. And, you know, this becomes a problem when if you're only reading the abstract of a paper and you might not um, realize that. And then what happens is, and they go into this as well, this problem can then get magnified because one of the um, tools that's oftentimes used in medicine is is um, what's called a review paper, a systemic a systematic review paper okay where you know someone is interested in a topic. and so they'll go back through all the studies that have been published on this topic and they'll try and combine them and summarize them and you know see what the effect is because sometimes you know one of the issues we run into in medicine, is running large trials, you know, that are necessary to show some of these uh, benefits uh, may not be possible. So sometimes we only have a bunch of small studies, and you know, you try and combine those to try and figure out the effects of certain things. Um, but oftentimes, you know, the authors of those review papers will only be looking at the abstract of the papers that they are reviewing, and they'll say this paper showed this effect. Uh, Based on what the abstract says, and it may not show that effect. So then you start to combine these things, and these problems get magnified even more. Uh, wow. But again, it's a it's a huge stu- it's a huge problem in healthcare uh, in the healthcare literature, and I think it just goes back to the fact that you know physicians oftentimes don't have the time necessary uh, to to properly go through the literature. You know, physicians don't get paid for reading medical literature. They get paid for taking care of patients and, you know, reading the medical literature to be able to do that effectively, uh, is something that oftentimes they ha- then have to, you know, do on their own, um, sure. after hours and all that. So, uh, and then there's just such a high volume of medical literature published these days that, you know, most physicians only have time to skim through some abstracts and, and, you know, maybe there'll be one or two articles that they're particularly interested in that they'll read in more detail, uh, but for the most part, they don't.
0: Uh, <laughs> you know, our, our our conversations have have been disruptive. Um, they've delivered information that has allowed me to make decisions about Primarily, for me, about what I put in my mouth, but also about exercise as well. you know it's it's given me concrete things I can do. Um, this paper the the effect of of reading this paper on me has been to become deeply distrustful of all medical information. Now that may be an overreaction, but if if only five out of a hundred studies pass these these high quality uh, standards, then it's not an. I don't think it's unreasonable of me to to assume that ninety five percent of what I'm hearing is based on bad bad studies, poorly poorly structured, poorly written, or worse. Uh, falsified results. So,
1: <sighs> you know, honestly, I think that was the, what the authors of this paper were trying to do. You know, I think that they are trying to get physicians to have that same attitude. Because honestly, that is the attitude that we need to have as physicians. We should be largely mistrustful of the information that's being put out in front of us. And by doing so, it's going to allow us to figure out you know, what is the information that we should be trusting. Because there is that one in 20 paper that is actually you know, useful information that we should then put into practice. But the only way we're going to figure that out is if we are mistrustful going into this process and we are skeptical about every piece of, you know, research that we are reading. And we go through this exercise to figure out, you know, what are the useful pieces of information? And ultimately, I I think the hope of these authors is that if more and more physicians are doing that, then the journals are going to kind of respond to that and you know they are also going to become more responsible about the the literature that they allow to be published
0: well i'll tell you what we've we've uh, we're 30 minutes in here and only halfway through this why don't we uh why don't we just say uh part one and part two is coming up uh in the next episode so Y'all tune in for the next one. Is that okay with you?
1: That sounds great.
0: All right. Well, for Dr. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. We're going to finish this conversation uh, on the next episode. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.